you for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. On this Friday night, we take a ride on perhaps the most majestic of all amusement park attractions with someone who knows everything there is to know about wooden roller coasters. So many of them are decades old now, so how are they kept up and even modernized? We find out. A military coup in the West African country Gabon this week is the eighth in that region since 2020, a huge jump compared to recent decades. We dig into what's driving it and whether or not Canada has a plan for how this country will adapt to that fast-changing situation on the continent. The European Union imported a record amount of Russian liquefied natural gas in the first half of 2023. That despite a vow to quickly cut off dependence on Russian energy because of the war in Ukraine. Of course, Russia makes a lot of its export cash off energy exports. It once again points to how Canadian LNG would be a big help to our European allies who are instead pouring more money into Russia's war chest. So why is it it happening? But first, we catch up with a teacher, artist, and mom who's a Yellowknife evacuee about the delay to the new school year there and what impact another disruption could have on students and teachers. And we put those same questions to the territory's education minister. First up, the only ride that thousands of people from the Northwest Territories want to take is that ride back home. 70% of the territory has been evacuated due to that wildfire threat. But going home may be a little closer now. The city of Yellowknife says residents may be able to return as soon as September the 6th, so next Wednesday, barring any increase in wildfire risks between now and then. It'll be the final phase in a re-entry plan currently seeing essential personnel for critical services go back first. As I mentioned, about 70% of the territory's residents have been out of their homes for two weeks and more at this point. And it may still be a challenging weekend. Wildfire Information Officer Mike Westwick uh, explains. With winds expected to reach 25 kilometers an hour sustained, gusting up to 50 to 60 kilometers an hour, very low levels of moisture, and temperatures reaching the mid to high 20s, there's some potential for some serious challenges. Yeah, and that's in the Hay River area, so that's south. Uh, Around Yellowknife, he says progress is continuing to be made. Uh, And again, with some daylight now for residents of Yellowknife, uh, at least one casualty in all of this has been another disruption to the school year. Students were meant to start start school again this past week. Obviously, that didn't happen. And with students and teachers scattered far and wide after having left suddenly or not been able to get back to Yellowknife because they were away somewhere else on holiday, there's been no option for remote learning for the time being either. With more on this, I'm joined by teacher, artist, and parent, so someone who knows all about this right across the board, Robin Scott, a Yellowknife evacuee, uh, I think still in Leduc near Edmonton. She was when we spoke last week. Robin, welcome back. Thank you for having me again, Ben. It's good to talk to you. How are things? How are things? Last week, everyone, uh, you know, kids were getting a bit restless, but things were okay? It has been 16 days since we were evacuated now, and it's been filled with a lot of challenging moments for my family, but I'm doing okay. I'm no longer in the Duke. I'm out exploring nature a little bit because it's tough to sit in a hotel room for that long. (laughs) No doubt. Tell me a bit about the back to school because it was meant to happen this week. I know you're a teacher. You have kids. Um, This is going to be, I mean, some good news today. I guess I should ask you about, about your reaction to this idea that you may be able to go back as soon as Wednesday. Um, I'm very optimistic. I look forward to the press conference being given by the GNWT tomorrow to learn more about these details. I doubt very much we're going to jump back in across the border on Wednesday and start things back to normal, but I look forward to seeing the process that will get us there. 
Yeah, and about the school thing, because I know going into today, it was still very much in flux. There was no idea when school would start, because it's not going to be able to start right away when people go back. They have to get everything ready. And also, because of the way the evacuation was done, there really wasn't a chance for anyone to set up for remote learning either. Mm -hmm, That's right, because our students don't necessarily have access to technology, and so that really wasn't a possibility. Um, I know that YK1, which is my school district, will make the decision of when we're going to go back. We've been assured that we will get lots of support and enough time to make adjustments to our courses. Um, And so we're not going to have students back right away, and we'll make sure that we're ready when they get there. Right. How are you going to, I mean, this has not been the first time I know in Hay River, at least they had to evacuate last May because of a flood. They were evacuated this year already because of a fire, probably Mm -hmm. a little bit different in Yellowknife, but you've had COVID, of course. So this has been tough for this cohort, hasn't it? It has been. In fact, the only benefit to having taught through COVID is that teachers in Northwest Territories and really everywhere are very skilled at modifying our plans and ensuring that we're covering our curriculum requirements through combined assessment, projects, and collaborating with each other. We have done this before, and we we feel prepared to do it again. Right. So, you know, I mean, if it's only a week or so, which, well, a couple of weeks, it looks like it'll be at least another week after people get back before they can start reopening everything. Uh, But a couple of Mm -hmm. weeks, that might make a huge, huge difference in terms of the ability to get all that curriculum in for this fall term. Sure. I think that by combining it, we'll be able to do it. But I think that really important for teachers, and I'm hoping that, that teachers are listening to this, is that we need to remember that we have experienced a traumatic event, all of right. us. Being displaced from our home is not something to take lightly. And so I think what's going to be most important isn't jumping right back into curriculum and making sure we get in all those unit tests. I think it's going to be about community building, um, attending to our students' emotional and socio-emotional needs, their mental health needs. I think that we need to return to the classroom gently and reassuring them that they're safe and that they can still meet their goals and that we're going to support them. And so I think that taking care of our students, these children who've been through this event, is going to be paramount for all teachers. Yeah, I I mean, I gather they'll still be an alert, so people still have to be prepared to go again. And that might be stressful for kids. You're right. You'll you'll need to be able to talk this out with with students because they'll have lived through something and each of them will have experienced it probably a bit differently. Absolutely. My heart aches for the hundreds of families scattered all across Alberta, waiting in hotel rooms, waiting for that moment to go home. And many of them are away from their extended family, their friends, the support that they have within their community. And that takes a toll, especially you know, for an extended period of time and, and uncertainty under who knows what conditions. How have you been able to tackle that as a teacher? Because I know, obviously, coming out of the pandemic, there must have been a lot of questions. Um, and now here we are with another sort of major life-altering event for a lot of young, a lot of young kids in, in the Northwest Territories. How do you even begin to, to broach the subject? Sure. So everything that we do and say in our classroom, I think, needs to be given with love. And so just being a place for them to share, to listen, but also to have the standards and know that, you know, we are... We still have expectations of them, and students like structure and knowing what specifically goals are expected of them and, and back into routine. So I, our students are resilient. The years that they've spent in COVID are, are indicators of that. Yeah, I can't imagine a more resilient group of students than the ones who've been, been through what they've been through over the past while. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm a mother, and so um, I watched my, my own children struggle with not going back to school. Now, I actually made the tough decision to send my kids to Ontario to be with their grandparents. Having two adults, two kids, and two very active huskies was not sustainable for us in a hotel room, especially with no kitchen or green space. And so now they're with their grandparents, and they're actually enrolled in Ontario School, who's been very welcoming to them, just in a temporary basis. But they're looking forward to getting back to their friends and family.
Yeah, I'm sure. I, I gather Alberta is doing that too, that, it can, that, that the students who are evacuated can in fact enroll in schools elsewhere if need be. Now, if this all wraps up pretty quickly, then, then great. But if not, at least they're able to, to, to get some learning in, in the interim. Absolutely. I don't think a lot of families have really taken um, advantage of that that invitation, although I do think it's a wonderful thing if, if families have. But I don't know. Students thrive best when they're around other children and you know have loving, caring adults around them. So I think it's great that Albert has extended that invitation. Yeah. Has there been any, any movement on some of the stuff we talked about last week? There was some concern over compensation. There was some concern over here we are another week later now, maybe some light at the end of the tunnel. But I know that it's been a struggle financially for a lot of people who've had to find themselves out of pocket uh, to try and sustain themselves over these past 14 days plus. That is a constant um, source of confusion and stress for families. Um, the expensive has been incredible. It's, it's very expensive to continue purchasing meals and snacks and entertainment and gas to activities, especially for families with young children. The financial drain is, is very serious. And there's still a lot of mixed messages coming out from the government on how families will receive support. I'm hoping that as we get further towards home, We'll have more answers, but unfortunately, those answers aren't here today. Not yet. Well, Robin, I hope the next time we speak, we speak uh, with you from Yellowknife. Wouldn't that be great? I hope so as well, and I can't wait to see my students. I miss them terribly and my colleagues, and I really look forward to being with them again. Robin Scott, uh, have a nice long weekend. Uh, Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. It is another weekend in which residents, many residents of the Northwest Territories are not home, but a little light at the end of the tunnel tonight, at least for people who live in Yellowknife, it looks like they may be able to go home on Wednesday, the 6th, as long as there is no more threat from the wildfires. Um, As we mentioned, that's had a big impact on return to school. Students were meant to go back this week. They're not. It could be another while before they can go back to school because it won't happen right away when people come back in. And that all has an impact on students, obviously. Students have already been through COVID and in the North West Territories, at least, and in certain areas, they've been evacuated more than a few times already in the past few years. So we thought we'd put all of this to R.J. Simpson. He's the Minister of Education, Culture and Employment uh, in the Northwest Territories. Uh, Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I guess just the the question that's always on everyone's mind, what is the situation right now with the fires and and how has it progressed uh, this week? Is, Is there any sort of cause for optimism? Well, that's a big question in, in the territory because we have fires all over the place. True. Of course, we have over two-thirds of our population has been evacuated, is currently evacuated. Um, that's six of our 33 communities. Um, the fire up in Yellowknife or near Yellowknife is, is being held. There are uh, fires around the Highway 1, which is the highway between Alberta and the Northwest Territories, and they're actually closing that highway over the weekend because right. there is supposed to be some strong winds expected to possibly push that fire across the highway. And then in my home community of Hay River, I mean, it's not at the town center, but there's community infrastructure all around that fire. Um, And so it's in a very precarious position, as is the situation with the other community of Fort Smith. So there are some very serious situations, as well as some situations that are, are getting resolved. Right. We've been talking a lot about the school year. Clearly this week, uh, the school year was meant to begin for a lot of the children, the, the students who are evacuated, as you are. You're, you're at Edmonton tonight. Uh, what is the plan? Is there, there must be concerns, of course, over having to delay the school year. But what, what is the plan right now to try and uh, to try? Are, are simply going to stay out of school for the time being and not and, and no online learning? Yeah, well, there are, you know, there are concerns, but there's really no other option right now. Um, 
we are not in a position to, to open schools and we're not even in a position to do online learning. A huge number of our teachers are from Southern Canada. Every year is about a third of our teaching staff turns over and most of those teachers come up from other provinces. And so they haven't even had the opportunity in many cases to come up to the territory. They don't have the necessarily the know-how of the curriculum. So I hadn't thought of no that, way right, that of we course. Can just, yeah, we can't just put together virtual learning packages. And also, when people evacuated, staff didn't necessarily bring with them the, what they would need. And the students don't necessarily have their, their Chromebooks or their other means um, by which they can access virtual learning. So you know, the plan is to wait until uh, we are able to get back in the communities from there, it's still going to take some time before a school will open. Yeah, there's sort of been some descriptions of what a return might look like, and there would be at least a week, right? There'd be at least a week notice before schools would re- would reopen. That's what's expected. Uh, you know, there's been, uh, in my home community, you know, we didn't see the sun for weeks on end because there was so much smoke. Um, and that was before we evacuated. And so, you know, if someone left a, a window open in a school, you know, there could be some some smoke damage in there. There could be a lot of cleaning that needs to happen. So we need to make sure that the schools are actually up and running um, before we even think about bringing, bringing students back and the teachers need to get in there, set up their classrooms, all of those things. So it would be uh, at least a week before students would be back in school from the date that uh, the orders are, are lifted. Yeah. Well, what do you tell parents I'm sure, and students? Because I'm sure this is not what anyone expected. And so many uh, people are not at home tonight. Uh, so many residents of the territory are not at home tonight. What do you tell parents and students? Well, I was, I was talking to a younger student uh, not long ago, and they're actually pretty excited that their summer has, has been extended. Right. You know, yeah. the, city, the city of Edmonton has been treating us well, and so we have access to all their rec facilities for free for all the evacuees. So, you know, some kids um, really are loving it, but parents are getting frustrated, I guess. Uh, it's tough to be stuck in a hotel room with, you know, maybe your, a few kids and a few pets. One option, though, is um, parents can do, and we've discussed this with Alberta, is uh, they can enroll their children in schools in Alberta. They've actually given that option. I saw so that. It would just be temporary. Um, you know, it might be a week or two, uh, hopefully not, not more than a couple of weeks, but, um, you know, that is an option for parents as well. Right. And, and you'll know this as Minister of Education. I mean, it's been a tough, it's been a tough stretch for this cohort. I feel, you know, anyone who started school maybe four or five years ago, I feel, I feel for those students because they've had the pandemic. And then in the territories, of course, there's been other evacuations. Hay River uh, had those floods back, I guess, in spring of last year. And now the, now the fires. I mean, there's been a lot of disruption. That must be a concern just, uh, writ large for the, for, for, for education and the education system in the Northwest Territories. Absolutely. Um, in, in the territory, we, we fared a bit better than other jurisdictions during COVID because we, we had the ability to really close our borders, essentially. You know, it was very strict criteria uh, to, to come into the territory. And so we were able to keep schools open a lot more than, than other jurisdictions. We, we didn't lose as many instructional hours, but clearly there were a lot of instructional hours that were lost because as there were COVID outbreaks, schools closed down. Um, so there was, you know, a lot of uh, issues. And like you said, Hay River last year, we had a flood. At the end of the year, school was out for weeks then. And this year, here we are again. Plus, this is our second evacuation of the year. It is tough on students. And, uh, you know, I, I do feel for them. It's um, They haven't had an easy go. No. Have you made any movement on, on any of the compensation stuff? I mean, we were talking to evacuees last week. It had been a week. Now it's two weeks. Uh, how, is, how, are you, how is the government coming along with sort of some of those issues that, uh, that evacuees have been asking be addressed, like compensation and, and so forth? Yeah, and so I can't really speak to, you know, the other ministers' portfolios, but I can True. say that prior to our last, Hay River's last evacuation in May, there was, uh, you know, not really any financial supports being provided. Mm-hmm. Um, evacuees were 
I guess, given cots and some people given hotel rooms if they had medical issues and then there were some meals provided. Uh, there were gift cards donated, but that was about the extent of it. The, the GNWT didn't have any programs. And so back in May, um, we, we created a program for individuals who had lost income during their evacuations because we're, the government is still paying employees. And, and so that was uh, one pot of money. And then we just stood up another program for transportation costs. You know, some people had to evacuate. They had to drive 17 hours. It's expensive to, to do that. I know here in Alberta, I'm amazed how cheap gas is, but, um, you know, it's still a long distance to drive. So we, we have that program as well. Money is flowing. But I, I have to say that I've never seen government programs implemented so quickly as I have during this and the previous evacuation. Well, RJ Simpson, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Heading into this Labor Day long weekend. So this is kind of the last weekend for these kinds of amusement parks and rides and so on. So we thought we'd tackle that. But we are heading into the Labor Day long weekend. And 2023 has been a significant year in the Canadian labor movement, uh, both a challenging one and some big successes as well. For instance, this week, Metro grocery store workers in the greater Toronto area negotiated an end to their month-long strike. Their union uniform says a new five-year deal gives workers an immediate raise of $1.50 an hour. And full-time and senior part-time workers will get another 50 cents an hour in January. That's that's quite a bit of money. Uh, the union says the deal will set a pattern for how it renegotiates more than a dozen collective agreements with various grocers over the next two years. Here's Unifor's Lana Payne. To see this fight by these 3,700 workers, not only inspired, you know, our own union, but but this is inspiring workers everywhere to be able to say, we can do this too. And this is the start of us in Unifor uh, in terms of grocery store uh, bargaining. Uh, we have many thousands of workers still uh, to negotiate collective agreements for. You have to start treating your workers with decency, with decent pay and decent work. Lana Payne of Unifor there. It's been a busy and at times challenging year, as I mentioned, for organized workers in this country. We had that federal workers' strike, the largest ever in the spring. We had that port workers' strike in B.C. over the summer that made lots of headlines. Uh, employees at TVO, Television Ontario, uh, are off the job right now. Employees at Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries also took prolonged job, job action this summer. That's just a few of them. So how are Canadians feeling about it? Well, Angus Reid did some surveys uh, heading into this Labor Day long weekend that showed Canadians largely feel about 60% that unions, unions have had a positive impact for those that they represent. 60% say that's true. Uh, the cost-benefit calculation is a bit more divided, and that sort of uh, sheds some light on, on what is a bit of an issue in this, in this country between those who are unionized and those who are not. Uh, so when it came to the cost-benefit calculation, 40% say it's positive on the country's economy as a whole, while 30% say it's negative. So it's a bit of a divide there. With more on all of this, someone who knows a lot about organized labor, Barry Eidlin, is an associate professor of sociology at McGill, in Montreal, an author of Labor and the Class Idea in the U.S. and Canada. Barry, thanks. Welcome back. Great to be on, Ben. And uh, I'm, I grew up with the Mind Buster at Canada's Wonderland myself. So that's I, a good I, one. I that's a great one. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. Have you ever been on the Monster in Montreal? I know you're in Montreal these days. Not yet. I need to get, I need to, get to La Ronde. So. Yeah, you'll have to go down there at some point. Yeah, just, you know, sneak on, sneak on the ride. 2023, I mean, we spoke last year about a lot of sort of uh, union activity in the U.S. I think we spoke right after, the, I think it was the Amazon factory in Long Island that had, that had uh, unionized. There was some Starbucks stuff going Staten on. Island. Staten Island, rather, yeah. But 2023 has been a busy year, been a busy year here. 
Absolutely. It's definitely been, I mean, you, you listed a bunch of them. There's also the, the, the Windsor Salt Strike, there's education workers in Nova Scotia, uh, you know, we uh, probably a whole bunch more that I've, I've missed. And it's really basically what we're seeing is the sort of culmination of three different factors basically coming together, right? So as most Canadians know, there's been a lot of long-term trends that have degraded the quality of work in terms of stagnating pay, uh, longer or shorter, longer unpredictable hours, um, you know, poor treatment, um, you know, eroding benefits, that kind of stuff. It's been going on for the past 40 years. And I think that the, then number two is that the pandemic kind of crystallized a lot of those long-term trends and made them much more visible. And, you know, I mean, I think that the, 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 um, when we're talking about the metro strike, one that was just settled, I mean, I think, you know, really the, the, the catalyst there was canceling the pandemic pay, right? So that's an example of how the pandemic really crystallized these things where sort of employers sort of felt just that they could just run roughshod over their employees with impunity and get away with it. And that really stuck in the craw of a lot of these, these workers. And then now sort of in the sort of we're, we're getting past the pandemic and, um, and we have a tight labor market. And, uh, and so there's more bargaining power for workers. And then on top of that, and then, and then, and then what you also see now is because, you're seeing more workers taking collective action that has kind of a, almost a contagion effect, right? Where, where and, and uh, in the sense that workers are like, oh, that's something that I could do. Those workers did it. Why don't I try that too? Could that be a solution to these problems that I've been experiencing as well? It's been interesting to watch the public perception because I think with the port worker strike in, in BC, there was, there was that one obviously earned a lot of uh, got a lot of attention but the public's re- reaction to it has been has been kind of you get the sense that sort of you know f- if you're going to fight for it fight for it and, and we support it now whether it's good for the greater economy i think people mm-hmm. are divided on that and there's a lot of reasons for that but it feels like there has been a fair amount of public support for workers fighting for their rights this year exactly and the reason for that as i see it is that the issues behind these strikes are issues that affect all Canadians, right? The metro workers are talking about, you know, we can't afford to buy groceries in the very store where we're stocking the shelves, right? Um, the, the, the longshore workers, you know, pay is not the issue for them. You know, pay, they're dealing with questions about how do we negotiate automation technological change. That is an issue that affects workers across a wide swath of industries. You know, the down in the U.S., uh, there's, uh, you know, the writers and the, the, the actors are dealing with, um, with AI in their industry. Um, you know, the Teamsters Union just settled a strike, uh, settled a contract with UPS uh, where there was issues of technological, you know, surveillance. Um, so, so, you know, these are issues that, that don't just affect that narrow group of workers. They affect a broad swath of Canadians. And so when they're thinking about, you know, is this a good thing? You know, I think that we, the, 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 the tendency in the media is to focus on, you know, workers, uh, sort of Canadians as consumers, right? So will this right. hurt the economy or will this hurt, you know, uh, will this sort of impact your ability to get 
the goods you need or what have you. Um, what, what, that, what that misses is that most Canadians are also workers. And so when workers are fighting for things like better pay, better benefits, better control over their work lives, Canadians see as workers that that could benefit them too. And so I think that that's sort of what we're seeing uh, as underlying the support that we're seeing for these strikes. Right. We also continue to hear, though, from economists talking about, you know, locking in higher wages and inflation and all the stuff that we usually hear about in these situations. Uh, how, have you, how have you seen the opposition to some of, these, some of these strikes, I mean, the other side of the coin this year? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's the standard playbook, right? It's about that, you know, this is going to hurt the economy. This is going to, you know, create a wage-price inflation spiral. Um, the, you know, the, these are sort of greedy workers sort of just out for themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly standard, and I think it's landing flat because, you know, Canadian workers have heard that stuff for the past 40 years, and things have just gotten worse for them, and maybe it's time to try something different. Right. Barry Eidlin is with us this half hour, Associate Professor of Sociology at McGill. His book is called Labor and the Class ID in the U.S. and Canada. We're heading into Labor Day, the Labor Day long weekend. So we thought we'd talk about organized labor. And it's been a busy year. It's been a busy year for workers and for organized labor in uh, Canada. You'll probably remember some of the more high profile strikes, including the port workers strike in B.C., uh, Grocery store workers at Metro stores in the greater Toronto area have settled. Uh, they got a pretty decent raise, Unifor representing them. They have a lot more negotiations coming up. Uh, you may get the impression that that sort of the labor, organized labor is having a bit of a renaissance. But I was interested because these are American numbers, by the way. But NPR did something recently that showed that according to stats, actually, union membership fell again last year, down 0.2% to 10.1%, the lowest on record. Uh, Barry, what do you think is going on? Do you think... Do you think, I mean, I've always been concerned that somehow in this country that we end up with two different sets of workers, right? You end up with those who are unionized, mainly public servants, and many, many, many who are not. Yeah, uh, well, this is, this is you're getting at what my, my book is actually all about, which Indeed. is why unions are weaker in the U.S. than they are in Canada, but haven't always been that way. Um, so while, while union membership and unionization rates in the U.S. Uh, hover around the 10 percentage point mark, uh, the, the, they're close to 30, they're around 28% in Canada. So it's almost three times higher um, in Canada. Um, but, you know, going back to the, for most of the 20th century, they were sort of in lockstep with each other. So there's a, a story there about why there was this divergence. But that's not the question. Um, I think that, that there is, so, so the question of is there a labor resurgence is one that a lot of people are thinking about, myself included. And, um, you know, the, the, the numbers certainly aren't reflecting it yet, but there is certainly more of, it, this is something that doesn't show up in the data, but there is certainly more of an energy and a willingness to fight amongst workers that is sort of, we're seeing in these strikes, but also some of the organizing um, going on, you know, like at Starbucks and, um, you know, the contract campaign at UPS that in the U.S. that just concluded as well. Um, and what's and in the, in Canada, what's interesting, and in other in other parts uh, of the world as well, that's that's sort of indicative of the potential for more of a labor resurgence, is that you're seeing workers sort of independently taking action. Right. I think that what's interesting about a lot of these strikes that we've been talking about in Canada, 
is that they have either started or been prolonged as a result of workers voting down agreements that were recommended by their leadership, which is something that you don't see a lot unless workers are really feeling like we need to fight for more, right? And it's not, and the, the thing is, is that these contracts are not even necessarily concessionary, right? They're not, they're, they're not trying to get the workers to swallow a bunch of givebacks the way that was often the case in the 80s and 90s. Rather, the rejections are happening because workers say, this isn't enough, we need more. And that is a sign of, sort of, like I said, a willingness to fight that is a necessary prerequisite for any kind of labor upsurge. Now, you're right that the, it's still not showing up in the numbers in either the U.S. or Canada, but there's certainly greater signs for the potential for a turnaround than we've seen certainly in several decades. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when I was coming up through the workforce. I mean, it felt like unions were, were sort of seeing out their days in many ways. So many people I know had never been unionized. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you think mm-hmm. happens if the labor market changes? If, there's, if, if a suddenly a tight labor market becomes, if we head into a recession or so on, do you think this resurgence or at least this new willingness to fight and by the way, to win, uh, will be blunted somewhat if all of a sudden we find ourselves in the labor market like we had over over quite a few decades when, when all of this was kind of uh, where the ball was in the employer's court? Yeah, it's it's really tough to say because it can cut both ways, right? Um, you, if you, obviously, the tendency would be towards reducing workers' confidence because they want to hold on to what they've got. And the idea, you know, if they, if they put their jobs on the line and they end up losing their job, then, you know, going down the street and getting a job somewhere else isn't as, uh, as, as easy. But, you know, historically, you also think about, you know, when labor has seen its greatest growth periods and, you know, the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression was, you know, when the modern labor movement was built in both the U.S. and Canada um, in, in a lot of ways. And that was, uh, you know, uh, quite a, a, a loose labor market, to put it mildly, you know, where you had 20% unemployment. Um, so it's not a guaranteed one-to-one relationship, right? The tight labor market means more, more fight back. Looser labor market means people hunker down and just uh, keep, keep, keep their head down. Yeah, I, I suppose in many ways, and you spoke about it already, it's it, it's a bit of the energy, right? Wins breed other wins, or the belief that one set of workers can get what they think they deserve uh, encourages other workers to to ask for what they think they deserve. Uh, and it it should be an interesting twelve to eighteen months. What do you what do you see coming uh, down the line between now and say the end of twenty twenty four? Yeah, the interesting thing there, sort of building on what what you were saying there, is that you know the the thing with collective action more generally is that, you know, it involves sort of people sort of changing their cost benefit analysis, right? So the, 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 the act of sort of acting collectively changes your sense of like what's worth fighting for, right? And so something that might have not been worth it if you're just sort of there by on your own, once you've sort of taken collective action or you've seen collective action work, sort of suddenly changes that calculus and makes it seem like it's more possible. So I think, you know, and that sort of operates independently of what the, you know, what the labor market is doing or something like that, you know? So, um, 
So I think that if we're seeing a continuation of this kind of energy, right, we've got several other fights coming down the pike, right? The the, the big three automakers yes. are negotiating in both the U.S. and Canada for the, at the same time for the first time since 1999, and um, I, I haven't been uh, I haven't gotten updates from Canada, but in the U.S., it really looks like they're headed towards a strike. And the union is really taking a hard stance in a way that they haven't in decades because they were sort of in that the, there's been this leadership transition there, which is another indication of this sort of bottom up worker led energy. Right. That the UAW members, the United Auto Workers in the U.S., voted in a leadership that was sort of putting forth a different vision for what the union should be and a, a, a much more fighting vision, a much more militant vision. And they're really ramping up their mobilization there. And, you know, the fact that, that the Canadian negotiations are happening at the same time is only going to amplify that. So that's another big thing that's happening just, uh, you know, within the next weeks, a uh, few weeks. Um, and, you know, so, so there's, and I think you know, to the extent that this just keeps building over the next few months, you know, this could, you know, this has the potential to lead up to something much bigger. Well, Barry, uh, enjoy your Labor Day long weekend. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Likewise. Thanks for having me on, Ben. This headline really caught my eye this week. Obviously, we've talked about this issue a lot on the show. Part of the effort to isolate Russia and push back its invasion of Ukraine has been to target its main source of export income, and that's energy, obviously. Europe's dependence on Russian oil and natural gas has been dropping substantially, as it was as European nations promised to do in an effort to try to boost Ukraine. Uh, but again, this headline caught my eye this week. It reads, EU purchases of Russian liquefied natural gas up 40% compared to pre-war levels. Up, not down, up 40%. Uh, that means that they are buying 40% more Russian LNG um, compared to before the, the, the invasion of Ukraine. That number was released in a report by Global Witness, an environmental watchdog organization, this week. It found that compared with 2022, things are pretty stable. But if you go back to before the invasion, again, imports up 40%, and that Europe bought more than half of all Russian LNG exports between January and July of this year. What's that worth? Something like 7.75 billion Canadian dollars. 7.75 billion. Uh, again, since the start of the war, the EU has banned imports of Russian coal. Uh, Russian seaborne oil has conspicuously been uh, has been gone way down, and they really have done a pretty good job of weaning themselves off a lot of Russian energy. But Russian gas, you know, it, it hasn't been flowing through the pipelines as much. But tanks of Russian LNG uh, are getting a pretty warm welcome at European ports these days. And that, again, begs the question, why isn't Canada doing more to help its European allies? German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was here in Canada more than a year ago now asking for more of our LNG. Here's what the prime minister had to say then. We are in a situation in the short term where we will do what we can to contribute to uh, the global uh, supply of energy by increasing our capacities in the short term and explore ways to see if it makes sense to export LNG and if there's a business case for it to export LNG uh, directly to Europe. 
Indeed. Well, a year has gone past and it feels like not much has done. There's still just that one LNG Canada terminal in BC that's under construction, almost done, but not much else. Joining me now with more of this is David DiTomasi. He's author of Profits and Power, Navigating the Politics and Geopolitics of Oil. And he's an associate professor of international business at Queen's University. Uh, David, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. These headlines always catch, I mean, these are the headlines that jump off the page to me sometimes. And this one this week was that the EU's imports of LNG from Russia are actually up, which <laughs> which I think would surprise people considering that their energy imports are way down in general. So they are acting on their promises to cut back on use of Russian energy, but not when it comes to LNG. Uh, how did, you, did, did that catch you off guard? Well, a little bit. I would have liked Canadian gas to perhaps have stepped in to fill that void. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, clearly there's some geographic reasons why Europe has built this dependency on Russian imports of gas. But um, there was always a geopolitical dependency that I think uh, was under the rug, but clearly has become a big part of what we're dealing with today with the war in Ukraine and, and the future of, of Vladimir Putin's regime. So, one of the points of energy always is worry about diversity of supply. It's always dangerous to worry to have all your supply coming from one place, but that's what Europe has done for the last 30 years. They're paying a bit of a price for it now. Yeah. I was surprised on the LNG front because I realized that the sanctions don't apply to LNG, but they still need to be shipped, right? I mean, it still needs, it's the same process as bringing LNG over. I mean, the US is now the number one supplier to the European Union, which I was surprised by Qatar number three, Russia yeah. number two. So they are diversifying a bit, but it's, it's, you're right. It's the glaring absence in there, Norway, so on is Canada. Yes. Well, the United States has been doing this a little bit longer. One of the things they learned from the fracking revolution about a decade ago when they had this sudden surge of oil and gas production is all these, they rapidly turned all their import terminals on the coal, on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico to export terminals. Right. And, and this is the beauty of the Americans. They do things very quickly and they just decide we're going to change. And they built, I don't know how many, but a, a dozen or more LNG-capable export platforms that are stuck in ships and can sail them anywhere. And they've been doing that long before the Russian uh, crisis came. But because they've got such a strong export platform now, and now they're expanding it, we're a bit behind, uh, more than a bit. Right. And you pointed out in that article that you wrote for Policy Options that Mexico is also sort of getting on yes. board with this. And so we're kind of lagging, not only are we lagging behind worldwide, we're lagging behind continent-wide. You're right. There's this sort of dichotomy out there that if somehow you are supporting uh, liquefied natural gas or oil exports, that somehow this means you don't support renewables or, you know, I think that's a false dichotomy. I think the money that you generate from these big projects in standard energy provision is what you're going to need to use to invest in different types of energy sources. I think that's what, I think that's what Mexico is trying to do. I think that's what Norway is trying to do, but you got to have the money first. <laughs> you got to have something to use to be able to then finance that transition. There's so much politics around this, of course, and a lot of finger pointing about why we are where we are here in Canada. You've looked into this a lot. What is, yeah. what, what is the problem? I mean, I think lots of people have their opinions. There is one big terminal being built where I am on the West Coast. But why don't we have this infrastructure and why have we not been able to seize this opportunity? Well, I, I, 
the particular federal government was, if you're going to build infrastructure that's going to cross boundaries of provinces, you're going to have to have some leadership in the federal government. And our federal government over the past eight years has been very, very heavily, they're trying to get Trans Mountain built, but generally their narrative has been climate change is here, we must stop it. And then to be seen to be reinforcing um, liquefied natural gas infrastructure is, is optically bad. I think that they adopted that narrative when oil and natural gas are plentiful and cheap and we didn't have the, you know, the four in Ukraine. So it was politically made sense to do it and you didn't pay any cost for it. But these projects are long. They take a lot of investment. And if we had done it seven or eight years ago, we would have this flood of of stuff hitting international markets now that would really help our European and Japanese and people forget this allies. They, they're people we've kind of signed on to, to defend and to help with they're in trouble. And one of the places they're in trouble is energy security. So we did, these things weren't apparent seven or eight years ago to the degree that they are now. And it takes, it takes a long time to fix. It, it seemingly. And also, I mean, when we look back maybe a decade ago or, or not quite that long, when a lot of major companies pulled out of LNG investment in this country. Uh, one of the reasons, of course, was the LNG market was was floundering. So there wasn't a lot of money to be made. But one thing that there also has to have been, uh, when they looked at the broad scheme of things, the regulatory environment in Canada was also uh, dissuasive for them alongside the economics of it. There's, there's several problems. One, it takes too long. Our regulations... Two, they don't ever seem to end. You never get a clear ruling. And there and. And some of the new legislation the Trudeau government has brought in means a lot of different people can raise objections, even after a regulator has okayed a project. They can still, you know, say, well, we don't think you've done this. We don't think you've done that. So it, it takes forever. There's no finality to it. And as you mentioned, for much of the past decade, the, the returns were, were low to begin with. So with high-end regulatory uncertainties, companies wouldn't invest. We And that's not just an energy thing. That That is an energy thing, but we need in Canada, I would argue, to have a much more streamlined, clear regulatory process for major infrastructure projects so we can get some stuff built. And because we're not doing that as much as we, our competitors are, our infrastructure rating is dropping. So, yeah, that's a problem. It is. And I mean, I think we're seeing the impact because at a time when Europe could have used Canadian LNG, yeah. and I don't want to sound like a political ad here, but when Canada could have used, when Euro- European allies could have used Canadian LNG to fill the gap or at least to wean themselves off Russian imports more, here we are. We don't have that. And that's a cost, that, that's cost us as well. It's a, sort of a lost opportunity, although maybe hard to have seen it 10 years ago, but still feels like a lost opportunity today. Well, one of the things, if you're talking about things in security terms, security is like your insurance policy. You have to pay for it even when you don't think you're going to need it. I mean, a direct parable about this that's also in the public debate is the state of the Canadian Armed Forces, mm-hmm. whose capital requirements have not been met. And this is this has gone, this was Trudeau, but this was before him as well. We haven't invested in those the way that we probably should. And as a result, when Ukraine comes knocking, we we don't have a lot to give. So these things, significant passy to exert energy, they have an economic element and they have a security element and they have an indigenous element, which maybe we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But all hitting all those bells ought to make it more compelling than just a, just an economic argument. David, in that article you wrote, you lay out a very interesting and, and complete case for why we should be uh Continue why we should be looking at investing to boost our LNG exports, everything from CO2 emissions uh, to reconciliation. You you still think there's a big benefit here, even though that market is still volatile? 
Well, the market is always volatile. In fact, the volatility has gone up, particularly in oil. Historically, the way you curb volatility is through some measures of cartel. You had a bunch of big producers who sort of managed supply in such a way as that you tame that down. That's increasingly hard to do both for oil and for natural gas because you have newer suppliers coming on the market. The next best way to cure that volatility and have a more reliable is to have a lot of people, a lot of countries dumping their energy into that system in an ethical kind of responsible way. The more we have people, I, I make this analogy in class when I talk about it and talking, it's, it's like a bathtub. The more spigots you have going in, the less worried you are about any one spigot have being a problem because you have others that can easily supply it. And then, you know, energy security, energy when it's plentiful, it's less of a security issue. In that sense, then, because I was reading it, there was an international conference in Vancouver recently on LNG yeah. and, and one of the, you know, one of the, commercial officers for one of the big German energy giants was saying, you know, we're good for the next 10 years, but we think within a decade, the impact of the war in Ukraine is going to start to lessen. Renewable more renewables are going to come online. And we're not so sure about the LNG market or the natural gas market period uh, a decade from now. And I know that's hard to look ahead. Uh, but do you think it, there still is an opportunity here for Canada to jump sure. in? Oh, by far. Yeah. I mean, and, I, and not only should we focus on Europe, who is probably the region that's the farthest ahead in trying to wean themselves off of carbon-based energy. But there's this whole ocean of emerging markets out there, particularly China, particularly India, but also others who are trying like mad to grow as fast as they can. And the point I made in the article is that if Canadian liquefied natural gas can displace even a modicum of Chinese coal, then the world, then we will have easily met our carbon emissions and we would make all, it would, you know, if we lower China's emissions, it's all of our emissions plus a whole lot more, even by little bits. You know, this is the way that the Americans have lowered. They've had got an economy right now that's, I think, four times as big as it was in 1980. It's got the same level of carbon dioxide emissions. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they've substituted liquefied natural gas and natural gas for coal. We can do the same thing in emerging markets. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. Are you optimistic? Uh, we're looking at the landscape. It feels like since the war in Ukraine, um, or since the invasion of Ukraine, uh, we, we've t- talked about this in a slightly different way. It's become less of an only an environmental conversation and as much a, a security and energy security conversation. Have you seen the, the goalpost shift at all here? Is, is it, yeah. do you see any hope? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I do think that the public debate is shifting. Like you said, I, I w- I'm not sure an article like the one I wrote would have been published two years ago. I am optimistic in a number of fronts. The more we make the rest of the world richer, the less likely they are to fight. Ultimately, they will use less energy in the production of goods and services. The data are clear on that. The Americans are a great example. Oil and natural gas has have, have a decades-long run to play in this. And uh, that doesn't, you know, and they will fund and they, they will be the basis for uh, learning new technologies. But the new technologies and capacities aren't there yet. I guess one thing I, I think we've we've some people believe that alternative energy sources can step right in tomorrow and replace liquefied natural gas, coal, and oil, and they simply can't. The, the scale's simply not there yet, and probably won't be for a couple of decades at least. So you need something in the mid meantime, and something to support that development as well, right? Something that right. you can that you can have. Uh, David DiTomasi, thank you so much. You're welcome. 
Now, Gabon is maybe not a country you spent much time thinking about or hearing about over the years. It's on the west coast of Africa. You know, Africa is sort of a big bubble on top and then it slims down. It's kind of on the left-hand side just of that bubble, just when the bubble starts to slim. So it's right near Cameroon and the Democratic Republic of Congo and so on. It's rich. They have oil. They have It's an OPEC member. They have lumber. They have lots of mining. And it's been ruled by one family since 1967. One family, the Bongo family, since 1967. I actually saw Omar Bongo, the dad, at a Francophonie summit many, many years ago. I'm like, that's Omar Bongo. He's been the head of Gabon for decades, and his son, Ali, then took over for him after he died, I believe, back about 10 years ago. Um, Well, that dynasty appears to have come to an end this week. The military seized uh, the office of the president after disputed elections, and they have disposed, apparently, of Ali Bongo. Uh, The leader of the coup, though, happens to be perhaps one of uh, President Bongo's cousins, so it may not be as much of a shift, complete shift of power as something happening within the upper echelons of power in the country. Western countries, including Canada, were quick to condemn the coup. Um, but there was some partying on the streets of Libreville, which is the capital, because, of course, uh, this dynasty, the Bongo family, uh, have not really shared much of the state's oil and mining wealth over the years. With this, It's a pretty small place, 2.3 million people only, but you know they're excessively wealthy. Standard of living there isn't bad uh, by, by African standards, uh, by sub-Saharan African standards, but it's not that great either. Here's some sound of the celebrations on the street after many declared themselves free of the presidential family's decades-long rule. Yeah, there you go. So celebrating on the streets because of this. Uh, If all this sounds a bit familiar, by the way, if you're having a deja coup, as someone uh, put it today, that's because this is the eighth military coup in Central and West Africa in less than three years. Niger, Niger saw one in July. Military officers have also seized power in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Chad, and others. Not one of them has been reversed at this point. So what is fueling this sudden wave of military coups, including the one in Gabon this week? And how is Canada, a member of both the Commonwealth and the Francophonie, so alongside almost every African nation in one of those two groups, uh, how are we reacting to a fast-changing situation in the region? And do we have a plan any kind of plan uh, for Africa. Joining me now is Chris Roberts. He's a sessional instructor at the University of Calgary. He's a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He also helped uh, develop the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs, now known as Global Affairs Canada, uh, write their first ever Africa trade strategy back in the the early 2000s. Chris, thanks for your time. Uh, Great to be here. Your reaction to this particular uh, coup, I mean, someone referred to what's happening in Central and West Africa these days as deja coup, because there have been so many of them of late. Uh, but your reaction to the one in Gabon, because I, I mean, it seemed like seemed to catch a lot of people off guard. Yeah, Gabon wasn't really on the radar screens of people that have been following the the, the progression of coups basically since 2020. So, yeah, it was it was surprising. The only reason why it wasn't surprising is because. Here you have a country where the same family has been in power since 1967, which, to put it in context, is the last time the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup. Indeed. So Many, he, long ago. Yes. Long, long time ago. Yes. So, um, and, and the issue then was this past week, Gabon had an election. And of course, elections, if your same family has been in power for that long, odds are the elections aren't transparent, free, and fair. And part of the problem was this week, the elections happened. 
And just after the election results were announced, that is when the military stepped in and said, enough of this. Uh, the elections were throwing the election results out because the, the incumbent president, the younger Bongo, uh, was, was declared elected. And the military uh, stepped in, in part, I think, because uh, there has been successful coups across West and Central Africa for the last few years, and that they could probably guess that the popular support would not be against a coup at this particular time. It's interesting. I mean, the reaction from the international community, Canada included, is what it normally is, which is sort of a call for safety to make sure that Ali Bongo, who is now the deposed uh, prime minister or president, rather, uh, is safe and so forth. And and a condemnation of, of this kind of change of power, clearly. But when you look at Gabon specifically, quite a, quite a unique country uh, within the context, oil rich, resource rich, wood rich. What do you make of what's happened? Is it a, is it a all negative thing or is there some good mixed into this, to this change in, in regime? Well, you know, it's never good. Military coups are never a good idea. They almost okay. never produce the kinds of results whether it's getting countries back on a democratic trajectory, better security, better uh, you know development, economic prosperity, etc. But in some cases, when a military coup happens, why does it happen? Well, in the contemporary age, uh, coups are often happening in places where, as everything you've lined up, uh, here's Gabon as an OPEC member, right? I mean, its production is relatively low. It's less than 200,000 barrels a day, but it's a small country, you know, just over 2 million people, sits right on the equator. It has huge deposits of manganese, which is critical to the iron and steel industry. It has huge timber resources. It's becoming a, a center for environmental protection, uh, carbon credits, these kinds of things. So the country itself, with a small population and lots of natural resources, should be, in some ways you could say, should be the Norway of Africa. And yet, even though it has a relatively high GDP per capita of you know probably $8,000 per person, Two-thirds, probably, of Gabonese live at or below a poverty line. So the issue then is 56 years of the same, basically, the party, but particularly the, the family in, in power, has not developed that economy in a way where the average Gabonese feels like they're, they're getting some benefits from this, which should be a very rich country. And that's when the military can step in, even if it's for some personal you know, some of the people in the military are directly related to the presidency. So this might be just a shifting of elites, but they can get some mass support in the short run because the benefits of what should be a burgeoning economy are seem to be captured by the top five or 10 percent of the population. Right. And certainly the wealth of the Bongo family doesn't go unnoticed, which I mean, they have that, you know, they're, they're quite flashy with their material wealth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even in Canada, some people in the, the extended family, including cousins, including some of the mili- some of the leaders that are actually taking power, they have properties in Canada properly managed. The, the GDP per capita of the country should be double at least, which would put it almost into the high income or at least uh, high middle income category. And, and Gabonese people should have a lot more opportunities. But the economy has been structured in a way to maintain political power for for a few. And so there is a lot of concern amongst Gabonese people that the political system, the last election, the economy is not structured for them. It's structured to keep a certain elite in power. 
And I, I, I gather we've seen that same scenario play out in several Central and West African countries. As you were mentioning, I think this is the eighth coup since 2020 in West and Central Africa. Niger, of course, in July, but Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso, Chad, and so forth. Uh, what What is going on? Because, you, you of course, there, you mentioned that uh, you know, one may breed another in terms of uh, military leaders believing they'll have popular support for this if it's worked, because none of them have been reversed as far as I can tell. Uh, what exactly is going on? Because I heard one commentator sort of compare it to Central West Africa's Arab Spring, that there's sort of an uprising against the leadership and the way things have been for too long in some of these countries. Yeah, and I, interestingly, I did. I had to go back and count, and I wanted to see how many successful, so those coups that actually ended up sticking around for a week or more. As, you know, we sort of count a successful coup when the, the, the folks that launched the coup actually are in power for at least a week. And in every case, when there's a success, successful coup recently, they stay in power for months or years. For the whole decade, from 2010 to 2019, there was only seven coups, successful coups in this region. Since 2020, just till today, so halfway through 2023, we've had eight the thing is, and we have to be careful about this, not every coup is really being caused by the same mechanisms, the same grievances. But in places like Niger, Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, you do have uh, military members who have taken power against the incumbent political elites who they just see as circulating around, not really helping the average person. Mali, Burkina Faso, and uh, Niger are three of the poorest countries on the planet. Gabon is not in that category, right? Uh, and yet they do have resources, right? They do have gold. They have you know, Niger. We all know about the uranium now. Mm-hmm. Niger is actually on the, the verge of becoming a major oil exporter in the next couple of years, which is new. So they have resources, and yet they're some of the poorest countries in the world. So the average person in these countries sees both the domestic political elites and the international community, which in the, for the most part has been Western until very recently, as being the cause of their poverty. And so they're willing to allow the military to try something different. Chris Roberts is a sessional instructor at the University of Calgary and fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute with an expertise on Africa. We're talking about the coup uh, this week in Gabon that happened uh, on Wednesday as elections were taking place. The Bongo family, Father Omar, son Ali, had been in power since 1967. Can you imagine? It's been a long time. And now it appears that at least in some ways that that dynasty is out, although the coup leader, one of them is one of his cousins. So it's not a complete changing of the guard. I guess the question here is, is Canada, I mean, I've seen a bit of commentary from Canada has obviously condemned the coup in Gabon and the other ones previously. But where does Canada stand on this? It's kind of hard to figure out what Canada's Africa strategy is when one looks at this. And we're part of the Francophonie as well. So this uh, this is something we should be paying close attention to. Absolutely. Uh, but the first premise uh, of your question is that Afri- Canada has an Africa strategy. Right. And I would argue that Canada has never had an Africa strategy. Over the last two years, uh, there's been talk in, in, in Ottawa about actually putting together an Africa strategy that would look at diplomacy, look at commercial activities, hopefully look at democracy and look at, uh, you know, the broad range development, all these things together. This has been talked about for two years, and yet we've still not seen any results of that. So that's a little bit disconcerting. On the other hand, hopefully the last few months have maybe added some urgency to the Canadian policymakers uh, across Ottawa and maybe across the country, that Canada, even though we're not a huge player in Africa, because of our Francophonie connections, the Commonwealth connections, Mm -hmm. 
peacekeeping, UN connections. Canada actually is a relatively important player. And if you add in mining investment and some energy investments across the continent, Canada is a significant player in, in a number of countries. So Canada does not have an embassy in Niger. Canada does no, no longer has an embassy in Gabon. We did for a few years between about the 1985 to early or late 2000s, but we don't have an embassy there either. Even though we might have diplomatic and sometimes commercial linkages, development linkages in countries, we often don't have a formal presence, like a, a formal diplomatic presence. So it's hard necessarily to get to um, a f- deeper understanding of the, the, the real dynamics that are going on. Canada, unfortunately, too often relies on French or American policy leadership in Africa. And my hope is that we will start to say Canada needs to have its own ideas, its own strategies, its own policies related to Africa, because what the French and maybe even what the Americans are doing are not necessarily in Canada's interests or in the interests of specific African countries. Yeah, and we we often use this, you know, the, the overwrought term of Canada punching above its weight. But it feels like in an Africa, especially Central Western Africa, where there are a lot of convulsions these days, that Canada has some of some less baggage than some of the other powers that are there. Certainly, less than the French and the English, and certainly the Americans. That this could be an interesting time for Canada to, to kind of blaze its own trail in a part of the world where there's a lot of opportunity right now, and certainly there will be a lot of opportunity for the rest of the rest of this century. One believes. Yeah, absolutely. I- I would argue that we've been actually punching even below our weight for the last effectively 20 years in Africa. Unfortunately, Canada, you know, with this reduced diplomatic presence, with reduced uh, development spending over over many years, the fact that we have not contributed in any significant way to UN peacekeeping missions in Africa since the mid-1990s, other than a brief spurt in Eritrea, Ethiopia in 2000, and a one-year tour in Mali in 2018, Canada is completely absent, almost completely absent from peacekeeping in some of the toughest missions that the UN is trying to do for conflict management in Africa. So yes, we, we've, we're, we're punching below our weight. I would be happy if we're punching at our weight, but I think we do have a, a lot of leverage to punch above our weight if we were actually serious about it. Right. And and because there is a competition for power and influence going on on the continent, obviously, the, the Chinese, the Russians, and on the other side, you know, countries such as Canada. So there there is a lot going on there. And it just you get the sense that Canada could be could be doing more on that front as well, because, you know, this is this is a real power struggle that's going on in the on the continent right now. Well, yeah, and it's a power struggle. I mean, most of these dynamics related to these coups are really local politics, right? right. It's it's real grievances or it's elite conflict or it's it's factional, etc. But often it, it is re- related to the democratic institutions haven't really produced what we we in the West said that they should produce, which is partly our fault for the way we've not supported trajectories or or undercut them. But then you do have the international geopolitical competition, which is for African countries, which are, are governed relatively well, it's actually not a negative thing. You can then leverage um, all of these other new countries. And we're talking, you know, we're talking now about, let's say, Russia, China, the West, but Turkey, UAE, India, there, there's many other countries as well that want better commercial relationships. They're looking for investment opportunities or import export markets, et cetera. Um, and so well-governed African countries can really take advantage of this this sort of interest in the continent. 
But if we only see Africa through a geopolitical lens, we're going to make a lot of the same mistakes we've been making. And I think what Canada can do is sort of step below those really big geopolitical conflicts, working with African countries, businesses, NGOs, communities, farmers, etc., directly to try and say, okay, what what could we do as Canadians to help make your life better? Because we don't have the same kind of geopolitical pressures that other other countries have. One thinks you'd need a plan to be able to do that, though, right? That's a, plan, we don't would, have a plan would help. A framework of analysis would help. We used to have in Canada a Secretary of State for Africa, right? which could coordinate, you know, cabinet level through to bureaucracies and try to come up with a more holistic approach. Not that it was ever well-developed, and it would, but, but that is what I think we need. Uh, and I'm just not sure if there's any kind of political will to do that in, in, in Ottawa, but I think that's what we need to stop being surprised by all of these developments that are going on in Africa. Well, Chris, uh, thanks so much for your insight on this. Very fascinating. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm glad somebody's talking about this. sound, don't you? That's the sound of a wooden roller coaster. And of course, the people on it, right? The great thing about the wooden roller coaster is often with those quieter new roller coasters, you hear the screaming, but you don't hear the coaster. And with the wooden ones, you hear the whole thing. It's that full sensory experience. They are great. I mean, I grew up in Montreal, so obviously there's the monster, uh, Le Monstre, as they call it, at La Ronde in Montreal, which is uh, a great ride. It's one of the biggest, I think, in North America, uh, wooden roller coasters. Uh, there is the Mind Buster at Canada's Wonderland. I've been on that one. And there's, of course, the one at the PE, which I've ever, actually never ridden on. I did see it. Because I went to the PE for the first time last year, having not grown up in Vancouver, of course. And um, that was actually the sound of the wooden roller coaster at the PE. It's turning 65 this year, which is great, right? It was back in 1957 that work began on it. And it has been a roaring success ever since. Still the top ride there, draw, drawing something like half a million riders a year. I think the last number I saw was 32 million people have experienced. Uh, what they called that stomach-churning drop uh, of the PE's wooden roller coaster since it was built. It underwent $2 million worth of refurbishment work a few years back. And this week it made news when a drive belt used to move the cars up that first steep climb before before uh, gravity takes on the rest of it uh, broke or or didn't work. So riders had to get out and kind of walk down. Uh, here's PE spokesperson Laura Balance. It is a 65-year-old ride, um, and so we do expect that there's sometimes, um, you know, the need to um, evaluate or tweak some of the processes within the ride. That's what happened today. Uh, fortunately, again, the ride did exactly what it's designed to do, and, and our staff did a great job of doing what they're trained to do. Right. So the PA, so the wooden roller coaster is back in operation after that brief little uh, brief little snag. And it got me thinking, though, about these wooden roller coasters because I've always loved the look of them. I mean, riding them is one thing. It can be a bit bit of a bit of a jolty ride, uh, but they're fun. But they look great. When you go to a music park, amusement park and you see a wooden roller coaster, to me, that really is what an amusement park should look like. But it got me thinking about them. A lot of them, of course, are old. The one in Vancouver, 65 years. Uh, how, how do you maintain them? How are they kept up? What makes them so special? Uh, and 
you know, what's the future for the wooden roller coaster? So we uh, decided to speak to Corey Kiepert. He's an engineer and principal with uh, the Gravity Group. They do a lot of work on wooden roller coasters. He knows everything you need to know about wooden roller coasters. And uh, he joins me now. Thanks for your time tonight, Corey. Thanks, Ben, for having me on your show. Super excited. Well, I mean, lots of people I speak to have cool jobs, but you have a really cool job. (laughs) Tell me a bit about how you got into it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I grew up in the Detroit area of Michigan, and my family used to take me to Cedar Point as a small child. And my brother and I, we we built a little amusement park in his closet called Barkley Rides with cereal boxes and whatnot. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he kind of grew up and kicked, he evicted me. And then I just kind of moved it to my closet and I never stopped. You know, I had the Hot Wheels track going on and Lego, but yeah, I was able to somehow switch that into a mechanical engineering degree in college and come out on the other side and get a job uh, working at a roller coaster company here in Cincinnati. And I've been here ever since. Incredible. And and the kind of work you do, just so listeners understand the, the sort of work you do overall, we'll talk about wooden roller coasters, obviously, but but uh, what what kind of rides do you work on and and what kind of uh, how, what what are what is the outcome when one goes to an amusement park to see to see your work? Yeah, so uh, I work on specifically the wooden tracked roller coasters, so like wood structure or sometimes they have steel structure. But you're always running on like eight layers of wood with a a top layer of a thin piece of steel. It's an artistic form of work, right? It's classic. But we also are doing very modern things with our wooden roller coasters. We've got rides that have inversions. We've got rides that have backwards cars. So uh, what we do is we're trying to take a classic attraction and bring some modern thrills to it. I mean, with, with the advent of computers... They don't have to be the classic designs where, you know, a lot of wooden roller coasters, you go down the drop and then you have really high, slow turns. And that isn't what we're doing anymore. I mean, we we have fast, low turns. We're going upside down. You're banked on your side. We push wood to its limits, you know, but we're doing it. You know, we're following a, a strict recipe, you know, like there are design codes for everything in life. Right. Uh, just like there are safety standards for toys there's safety standards for automobiles. Uh, they're the same exists for amusement rides. And if you go worldwide, like we have rides, Australia, China, Europe, America, they have design standards for amusement rides. And so we follow those codes wherever we go. What is it about? I mean, I, I think anytime I've been to an amusement park and I've been to, you know, quite a few and the new modern rides are all really great looking and they twist and turn and the way they use steel these days, it's all really fascinating. But the wooden roller coaster kind of occupies, you know, it's kind of the top of the hill when it comes to rides, I find, at least visually. Tell me a bit about your like of the of the wooden roller coaster and, and does it indeed, is it still at the top of the pile when it comes to sort of how rides are viewed in the grand scheme of things? Oh, man. I mean, I, I love wooden roller coasters. I mean, I I actually even got married on a wooden roller coaster. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, so your wife loves them too, or your yeah, your partner does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she, uh, yeah, we got married Knott's Berry Farm Ghost Rider in '99. So yeah, love love wooden roller coasters, and I think there's something where any generation, when they go into an amusement park, they have some fond memory of a wooden roller coaster. I mean, if you go with grandma and grandpa, they remember riding this 
like long gone roller coaster at such and such a park, or maybe they went there when they were dating, you know? And so it's just, it's a multi-generational ride for one. Number two, like with the changes in the, uh, the weather, I mean, the ride experience changes, you know, cause wood it's, it's a living, breathing thing. Like as you've got like moisture in the air, rain, it can go faster. The wood, the wood stack that you ride on swells or shrinks a little bit. It has that clacky, clacky sound, you know, as you go. And that just adds to the experience oh, when the you're sound. going through yeah, and the, the structure. I mean, when you can be going just like 20 miles per hour, but if you've got structure kind of flashing by your side, it just makes it seem like you're going so much faster and so much more out of control. You know, there's just so much going on around you with a wooden roller coaster. Yeah, even even when you're not on it, when you're just at the park, the sound that the cars make on the wooden roller coaster kind of adds to the whole atmosphere because a lot of those rides are now are pretty silent other than, you know, the noise of the people on them. But the wooden roller coaster, as you mentioned, it's yeah, it's like it's like a, it's a the full on it's the 360 degree experience at an amusement park. Yeah, no, it's uh, I, I think, you know, every good amusement park you know, has a wooden roller coaster or should have one hint, hint, but uh, yeah, we, I, I just, you know, everyone at our company, we love, we love amusement parks. We love rides, but we especially love the wooden roller coaster. I mean, there's just something very special, um, you know, a nostalgic, uh, but thrilling with the wooden roller coaster. Corey Kiepert is an engineer and principal with the Gravity Group. They specialize in amusement park rides, but specifically uh, wooden roller coasters is one of the things they're really involved with. And we're talking about just how great wooden roller coasters are. I don't know how many of you are going to head out to an amusement park this long weekend. The PE, of course, going on in Vancouver. They have a very famous wooden roller coaster. Uh, Corey, one of the things that, that, strikes me always, of course, is that wooden roller coasters tend to be decades old. And one wonders, especially in climates, you know, like, you know, especially where you are in Cincinnati or places like Montreal or, you know, where there's winter and uh, the climate can be pretty brutal on a wooden structure. Uh, how do you keep them up? How do you maintain them? And I guess, uh, how do you make sure they they don't get lost? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly uh, maintenance that's done in the off season on the rides. Uh, a lot of the, the structures are made out of a treated wood product, just like if you have a deck or something on the back of your house, and that helps protect it against the environment and, uh, you know, insect rot, different different problems like that. But, you know, when, when it comes to amusement parks, what you don't see is behind the scenes, you have a talented group of technicians that every day just scours the rides. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, when you go to an airport and you ride an airplane, of course, you think, yeah, there are people that are inspecting these planes, keeping them safe. You have the same level or beyond people doing inspections on a daily basis on these rides, um, you know, and in the off season, the non-destructive testing and other work that goes on, it's uh, like amusement parks are like little cities, you know, with all the different departments working and all of the different gears uh, turning. But yeah, safety and the inspection is just a huge part of it. And with a wooden roller coaster, the great part is it's like a set of Lego. You know, you, you've got all sorts of parts that look very similar. So you can easily take a part off and replace that part. And so, yeah, you've got wooden roller coasters out there that are over 100 years old that are still in just as good a shape because they have that, that yearly maintenance. Just like, you know, you can see a Model T going down the road. Sure. Someone really cares for that. And I think you'll find when you go to an amusement park, there are a lot of technicians that really pride themselves and love the industry, and they love just keeping that ride going. 
Does it make a difference with what kind of wood is used? I, I think Douglas fir was used in the PE one. Uh, obviously, <laughs> had a lot of that nearby. Uh, but do you ever is that does that make a difference too? Yeah, I mean, typically uh, Douglas fir, southern pine, those are two woods that are really common for wooden roller coasters. And what makes those a good choice is they're they're really strong woods, but they also have ductility. Like so, when you're taking a track and you're having to twist the wood, it's something that you can bend it, you can twist it, but it also has great strength as well. So that's what makes them just a, a excellent, you know, and the fact that it's so prevalent, I mean, it's just a sign that there should be more wooden roller coasters, right? Yeah, it felt like like so many things, that there was probably a period in the 80s and maybe the early 90s where we thought maybe, you know, music parks, some of them were under, I mean, I remember just from my own experience, music parks were going through a bit of a tough time. Um, wooden roller coasters, I imagine, would be probably relatively expensive to keep up and so on. And there seemed like there was a time where the wooden roller coaster might be under threat. And but feels like we've passed that now. We've sort of turned the corner and now we appreciate the legacy of them and that they're a really important part of the amusement park parks that happen to have them. Yeah, no, I would agree. And I think that as an industry, you know, as there have been different advances with uh, different wood preservation and treatments, uh, some of the different design uh, advances with different cars and track systems. I mean, we're doing more and more to reduce that maintenance and make a wooden roller coaster uh, something that can last through that next generation as well. I mean, I know when I go, I want, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll be a grandparent going and looking at that old fashioned wooden roller coaster and watching my grandkids ride. Yeah. Well, you're coming up on your 25th wedding anniversary. I wonder whether you're going to end up back on a wooden roller coaster. You know, I would love to do that. I'd love to go back, take the family to, uh, I've got four kids now, so oh, we could all, we fill up part of the train. That's you know? true. Yeah. And, and, but it's interesting too, that, that you've, because I think for a long time, the idea was that wooden roller coasters were sort of a throwback that you couldn't really, that they were a less exciting ride than some of the twisty things that they had brought out in the eighties and the nineties. And now it seems with work like yours, you can actually keep the structure, which people love and, and advance the ride and still keep you know keep that wooden that feel of the wooden roller coaster yeah i mean that's certainly the goal and i mean like we have a a new patent pending track system that that's allowing us to push that envelope even further and we've got other you know like things up our sleeve as far as ideas for where we can take the wooden roller coaster next as well so i mean that's what our industry is all about right like people want to go to a park and they want to do something that is as scary as possible in a safe and controlled way. It's our job to year after year come up with new ideas of what could we do that would just kind of be that next level of thrill. How much different is it now? Because one of the big things that came out with the Peonies wood roller coasters, they found the plans, they found the designs, right? And and, and this goes back to uh, clearly a long time before the kind of technology that you probably have access to. But is it still the same principles as it was then, more or less, just with with more technology to help? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar. I mean, if you go back to the PE, like that ride was probably made with a, a handful of drawings, like somewhere between two and maybe 10 drawings. If we're doing a ride today, there are thousands of drawings. Like we know where every bolt is located, we know where everything is. And, you know, like if you look at those drawings from the PE, it's like, well, the track's going to be this high here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, and, and, and so there's a lot of details that they just relied on the expert builders to fill in for those rides. Whereas now I'm running analysis on every cross section and, and looking at the placement of, of 
fasteners and other members and it's a different animal. I mean, it's the same animal, but it's evolved, you know? Well, it's great to see the wooden roller coaster moving with the times because it means it'll it'll stay with us. And that's, I think that's the end goal. Uh, th- Corey, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Ben. 